Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome back to Two Guys, One Book. I'm Tim, joined as always by Brian. Hey, Brian. Uh, <laughs> welcome back. Today, this week, we are discussing um, The Codebreaker by Walter Isaacson. The subtitle is Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. So it's, uh, yeah, a nonfiction book. This is a Tim pick, and it is a pretty interesting read, I thought. Um, so, yeah, what? how about you, Brian? You want to talk about first impressions or why I picked it? Well, yeah, I think that's the obvious question I have. First of all, why would we pick this book, Tim? Have you read Walter yeah. Isaacson before? I have. I read his. I forget which one I read first, but I read his Steve Jobs biography and his Leonardo da Vinci biography. So I think I feel like he's a good kind of um, synthesizer of information and a profiler of interesting people. And he uh, is drawn to a certain type of pe- person. Like I don't know, some people might not want to compare like Steve Jobs or da Vinci or people like that, but like they're curious people and they had um, were interested in a lot of things and. We're pretty accomplished. I don't think people would argue with that generally. So, um, yeah, I thought he's a, a pretty good writer. Nothing too uh, technically deep, kind of like high level, more people oriented biographies, I would say. Um, so I think I kind of enjoyed his style. Um, and I heard this in a podcast. I heard him talk about this book specifically. And I'm interested in like biotechnology and genetics. And, and that seems like the future. So that's why I picked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The other books you read by him were, were more, you said, not so much in the Like, they were just more about the men, like Da Vinci and Jobs, and not so much about the their technical prowess or the, the things. Yeah, I mean, it, it talked about stuff they invented in their lives, but, and they were kind of different books just because he wrote the Jobs one while Jobs was still alive. And, um, and Da Vinci was in, like, you know, 15th century or something so there's only so much like so many details you can gather from uh, about his day-to-day life um but yeah i wouldn't say either of them were too technically deep and then this one too i would say is more so technically deep maybe more so because i wasn't as familiar with the material or like subject but um but yeah i would say he got in the weed too of just like a lot of like the politics of the biotech world and um but I feel like he kept things at a relatively high level as far as explaining genetics and biology overall. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you're, so you're a fan of Walter Isaacson. You heard this book on a podcast and, you know, you're a hacker yourself and decoding and stuff. So you could be like, oh, well, what, what's better than the genetic code, you know? And uh, yeah, what, that's what piqued your interest in this, huh? Yeah, I think the last thing I would say about it is like I in the podcast I heard, I think he was on the Tim Ferriss show a long time ago talking about this book. And he said that Steve Jobs had said that life sciences and biotech was the next big frontier, because I think, you know, around that time, he was probably getting all these treatments or exploring treatments for cancer. And and they just, you know, the genome has been sequenced. So there's been a big advances in the last 10, 20 years. So I, I guess it's something that I was like, if you know, these high profile people are talking about it and like, it seems like a, a pretty powerful world to know more about. So I thought it was worth learning more about basically. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a valid point that, you know, if this is where so many uh, innovative thinkers think the next big breakthroughs in uh, what will change our life um, 
you know, then it's it's worth paying attention to for sure. And uh, yeah, this was this was quite the book. It was um, very thorough. And uh, did it meet, meet your expectations to to Da Vinci and Steve Jobs? Uh, it's hard to say. I like those books a lot. I think I don't I don't know. I kind of forget because I read them a while ago too. But I remember liking them at the time. Um, I would say it was this one got a little bogged down in like like I said with the politics and um and also it was written kind of I don't know almost it seemed in a rush in some sense because I feel like he was tying together elements of like the coronavirus uh pandemic uh COVID-19 everything that was happening in the last few years and um and so I wonder if he had would have had a more holistic view of where things are heading if he had waited maybe a, a year or two but um yeah so I don't know it's it's hard to say I think it's worth reading I don't know if I it, I would say it's it's good. It's a good book. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah. How about you? I, what are your what are your impressions? Well, that's just it. Like I I didn't really have any impressions going into this. Um, I of course had heard of Walter Isaacson. I knew he's a famous biographer. Um, and when you brought this one up, I thought it was interesting. It wasn't so much about one person. Yes, Jennifer Dalima is the main uh, uh, person featured in this book, but he does profile many other scientists um many other you know grad students postdocs and all these other you know people in between um to the point where it got a little kind of like keeping track of who all is who and everything it seemed like every time he brought somebody up that he brought up two chapters ago he had to re uh reintroduce or re or um uh, you know uh uh he had to uh let give the reader a little more context to help the reader remember who this person was. Um, and you know, which made it maybe a little wordy, maybe a little bogged down. And he really goes in the weeds. You can tell that Walter Isaacson is very, very interested in CRISPR, RNA research, DNA research, and all of that stuff. And you could tell like, like, um, that he was very much into this world. Like you said, before coronavirus is when he started the research on this book. And then the coronavirus came and they realized that that was like, it was, it, I feel it. Isaacson probably feels like a little, like it was meant to be like he was researching all this stuff about CRISPR and RNA. And then all of a sudden the pandemic comes where they can maybe apply this research in a very um, direct way to help humanity. And, and I think he probably saw the opportunity there to continue his story. And, and so, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe he rushed it at the end a little bit, but, um, uh to but it was because he wanted to tie it all together with coronavirus while everybody was still i don't know aware of it but not that people aren't aware of it but um so i mean i thought he did i thought it's a very thorough book i would i don't know man i mean it was it bogged me down at times because it's just like it was for me it was just tough to pick it up sometimes because i knew he was talking about all this research about crispr and then these different um crispr associated um, what are they? What are the Cas9 and the Cas12 and the Cas1? What are those called? CRISPR associated uh, sequences, I think. Yeah, enzymes maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So he talks about all these different acronyms, and then, then of course, you know, when all these uh, you know PhD uh, students get their doctorate, and then they go out and become postdocs, and then they re then they branch off and create their own companies, and then they have multiple different companies. And they always come up with clever acronyms for all this stuff they've been doing. <laughs> right? 
that it, it just makes it hard to follow at times. I did, I, and there are, there are kind of some diversions he takes along the way where he talks about himself getting into the laboratory and being able to, he, like some of the grass students showed him directly how to manipulate RNA and how to put in the CRISPR with the sequence and have it with a special dye. So, you know, when the cells are activate and take the new DNA and all that stuff. So it, but like he talks about his experience at the lab and it's like, does, is that really necessary? Was he just, I get it. You're trying to show like how easy it was to manipulate that stuff, but it just was like 50 pages. I didn't think I, the book really needed. Yeah. I think on that specific part, he was trying to say like, um, kind of like with the computer revolution, how everyone started to get their own personal computers and then phones, like with biotechnology, it could be heading in that direction where, you know, it's getting easier and easier for like uh, us to have our own personal like experience with uh, directly with biology and, and that kind of field. And I think that's oh, yeah. Also, yeah. And I think that's also why we focused a little bit on that biohacker, that Zayner character, who was an interesting character, but like I don't feel like that's the kind of guy we want to uh, promote or celebrate necessarily. I get he's this is a guy that was like injecting himself with CRISPR stuff and like you know developing his own, trying to develop his own COVID uh, vaccine um, along with everybody else. And he, he just came off as somebody who was trying to push the envelope, but didn't really have any like legitimate uh, employer to help make his, to, to, for his research or anything. He was just kind of out there on his own doing it, which kudos to him. But like, I don't feel like that's necessarily who you need to celebrate in a book like this. Yeah, I think he was trying to make these parallels between like computer hackers and biohackers and like how much publicity do you want to give this guy when he's doing these stunts and maybe some reckless and somewhat dangerous things. Um, but I guess I can understand that guy's frustration, though, in the sense that it seems like progress has been so slow in this field, probably because like a mix of incentives and like these academic institutions have been like um, they now all have this like profit motive. And uh, because they just want to protect their research, so it's been kind of siloed. And then coronavirus helped like incentivize more collaboration, and hopefully it's going in like a better direction. But I can see why some people got frustrated by the lack of how slow things are moving. Right, and I think I think that was an important thing to touch on in the book, so that you know we, the layman reader, do, can understand that like that. Yes, there's people in academia or research universities doing this work, but then there's other people out there that think this needs to go faster because this is cutting edge stuff and all that. So I get that. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It just, it just, uh, I'm going to pull a Tim and say it could have been shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I wrote in my notes, like there, this was a slog at times and it it's a little hard of a book to write. Like, I think he could have focused more on, Jennifer Doudna, if like, you know, she's on the cover, it's called the Codebreaker, but I get why he had to involve these other side characters, but yeah, he kind of went into a lot of tangents at times. Um, it probably could have been shorter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. And, and uh, it just, to me, it felt like a little, um, I guess imbalanced because at the, the first third of the book was about Doudna setting, you know, like her, her life, her career. And then her setting up her lab at Berkeley and then having these grad students. And then like he had a whole chapter about certain grad students, or at least maybe not a chapter, but a good section about the grad students. She got to come work for her and, 
and get their PhD under her doing this it's exciting research with RNA. And then towards the then slowly over the book he introduces more and more characters. You know, not just her it's not not no longer focusing on her PhD students, but focusing on her rivals and her competitors at Harvard and MIT and and uh, in, in Europe. And then it got to a point where like, I didn't know who was who and like who was working under who. And then at the end of towards the end of the book when he's doing going to the lab and doing the the, the CRISPR stuff in the lab himself, he's meeting with these other PhD students who in Downer's lab. But I don't feel I got as much uh, page time as the first ones in the first third of the book. You know what I mean? Like I felt like it was kind of like how. I don't know if everybody got equal share, but I, I don't think that's really the point. But like, it just it just kind of made it difficult to track all these people and these dynamics. Yeah, I wonder if he wanted to just throw out a bunch of names of people he thought deserved some credit, but it's hard to evenly kind of, you know, attri- attribute everything to people for the right things, but for different things. But um, but yeah, also the a theme in the book was like there's parallel research and a lot of inventions in history too kind of happen around the same time but i didn't realize how competitive like the process was about publishing a paper and and the politics involved in that and um how intense that could kind of be yeah that was really eye-opening yes the, the, the you think like oh scientists are just out there doing research and then when they're done they click submit to a publication the publication looks it over and says oh that sounds great we'll publish that but it's so much more like they have a review process and can send back comments, but then some people can get a fast-tracked review, and so it's published sooner or something. And it, it's, yeah, it's very cutthroat and doesn't make me want to join academia or research at all. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it was interesting to, to learn about, like, the main characters, like, personalities. Um, uh, so, like, you had Jennifer Donda and then this French partner she worked with, Emmanuel Sharp. Uh, how do you say her last name? Sharpentini? Yeah. Um, so Donna's more like American, like go-getter. She's a good like assembler of teams and pretty bold and ambitious is the sense you get. And then uh, Emmanuel is more, and I'm sorry, I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but, um, you know, she's more reserved and kind of coy, like French. And she likes to jump from different academic institutions and never get like too attached um, and she probably sees down as a little aggressive, like American and like kind of forward and, and seeking too much credit and that kind of thing. And then you have like Feng Zhang, I think is the Chinese guy, uh, or he was born in China and moved to the U.S. when he was young. And um, he was kind of down as biggest competitor as far as uh, research and innovations. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think uh, down and Zhang ever collaborated. Right. Because they were they were on opposite ends of the country they were competitors but i did fit like Downa's uh dynamic with charpentier because it was kind of like hot and cold they worked together and then they didn't because i think charpentier wanted Downa to join her biotech firm and Downa declined and then so like it was just interesting dynamics there and then there was george church at at harvard he was an interesting character as well and i think those were the four big ones um mm-hmm. the church uh, I think Jean was a Jean, a former student of, under George Church, right? And then and then Jean started doing his own research, on, and Church didn't know about it. And there's some uh, like, did Jean tell him? Did he not tell him? Who knows? Um, but yeah, that was. And then then they go into scads of other people like doing research, 
about um like wasn't there some uh, a section about people doing research in yogurt cultures or something yeah i think that was one of the first people because i think that inspired Downa to look into like the role of bacteria in fighting viruses right right yeah so yeah that and so like there's and i think like you said it's about how so many things in science and in in innovation are parallel discoveries where there's multiple people working on a similar problem uh simply because uh, uh it's, it, the the timing is right as much as anything else and that goes back to i hate to say it but it goes back to that matt ridley book we we read yeah. so long ago how innovation works so. what was that lesson he said just like things tend to get invented around the same time was one of the yeah. well because there were so many other factors like the steam engine needed certain types of uh, metal alloys to contain the pressure of the steam so that you know maybe somebody might have had an idea to try to harness steam but they just couldn't because the raw materials needed to do so were just weren't ready yet. And same thing here. Like we don't, you know, they have, they heat. So, you know, nowadays we have all this technology with microscopes, all nano, like all this other nanotechnology that we can do many things with very small cells. But, you know, back in the day they were like when they, they didn't even know what DNA looked like in the fifties, right? That's all Watson and Crick. To, you know, determine that it was a double helix and all this stuff. They were looking at these grainy photographs of like, um, you know, uh, trying to, I don't even know how, what the, what the photographs up or no, they were x-rays right there. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting I to connect. Like, so there was the researcher, I think around 1950, Rosamond, uh, something who kind of got these photos of DNA and then Watson and Crick discovered like the helix structure and got like the Nobel prize. And then, um, down to read their book and was inspired because it was like i guess pretty engaging read uh, about the discovery process and then she met him eventually and and um so it was interesting how we connected those threads uh together even though watson turned out to be a little bit like out there <laughs> he didn't seem to be like a crotchy old man who didn't quite yell <laughs> right right but like um yeah. But like, so maybe people might have had ideas like there might have been brilliant people 50, 60 years ago that could have had ideas about CRISPR or, or genetic research, but just didn't have the laboratories and the equipment that we do today. You know, so I think that's that's ultimately, you know, the roundabout way of saying like why there might be parallel discoveries just because the timing is right, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think there's just a lot of pressure, though, to like accept credit or be like the first one to like get your uh, discovery published because then there's probably like millions of dollars in like a biotech business or the university getting grants and all these things so it just seems like a really hectic thing and, and honestly kind of a distraction from like the research and discoveries themselves so i mean i know c competition can fuel the race to innovate but also like seems like it took a lot of energy and effort and probably kind of like disillusioned people like the French woman who just probably was more interested in the research. Right. Yeah. I, I, I bet there's, there's plenty of research scientists that get turned off by the, the whole published or perish, uh, you know, type of mentality that research universities have. And I feel like Dow does is a very good example of someone who genuinely loves the research, but also it, is keenly aware of like what it takes to get published and to get uh, uh you know recognition for the accomplishments that one does and i feel like that um she has a, co a combination of skills that i think suited her very well to be a research uh, 
researcher at a university. Yeah. Yeah. She knew like she had to play the game a little bit of like what it took to get recognized. And then you had the guy, Eric Lander, who was like Ung Jong's ad- advisor or he was like the head of the broad institute, I guess, where Jong worked. And so he would maybe get accused of like minimizing down those accomplishments, accomplishments and contributions. So and maybe try like rewrite the history of how much she contributed to the discoveries. But then she like wins the Nobel Prize. So it's like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, all these different competing egos and like um, people trying to take credit. Yeah, I forgot about him. I think, you know, I think Isaacson tries to give Eric Landers or Lander the, the benefit of the doubt, but um, he, does, he can't help but come off as kind of like a kind of an unsavory character. Yeah, I agree. But I do think it's interesting how the Nobel Prize can only be awarded to three people. Yeah. Why, like who decided that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's like some policy or something. But he says like for any major scientific breakthrough in like chemistry or, or, or medicine or whatnot, they, whatever the award is, when whoever they award it to, it can only be three people. But when someone Doudna won, it was this Doudna and Charpentier. They didn't select a third person because like, who do you pick for the third person? Was it Jean? Was it, you know, George Church? Was it somebody else that helped Downer and Charpentier? You know, I think, you know, and the Nobel Committee, I think, just decided to pick two. But I thought that was very interesting. I didn't, I had never heard that before that the Nobel Committee only selects three people per award per year. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, like we were talking about in the beginning, it was kind of a slog just to get through sort of the back and forth of like, you know, taking credit. But then where it started to get more interesting uh, was when that guy in China, like, uh, <laughs> did the um, CRISPR babies, right? And uh, how wild was that? Where it's like, he used, he was the first one, and but it wasn't medically necessary. So our, all these, like, ethicists came out and Dauna spoke against him because he was trying to have, like, a HIV-resistant embryo by removing this gene that made them um, susceptible. But they were like, it wasn't medically necessary because there are other methods to prevent that. And so he actually, like, ended up getting sentenced in China and going to jail, right? So it was a pretty, like, big deal at the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that was a very interesting part of the book. And then I think he uses that that to segue to a, a chapter or two about bioethics, bioethics. And, like, is, you know, you know it, is there a slippery slope here that we're talking about where, you know, these researchers that, like, Dauna and Zhang and Church and Charpentier are are genuinely curious about you know solving disease genetic diseases and uh, helping human beings live better lives um, by eliminating you know suffering, but at the same time they're working on you know the human genome, which you know could potentially mean that you could have uh, what, what's that called uh, designer babies, right? Where the parent can select their genes that they want their babies to have. And they can make them taller and thinner and possibly even more intelligent. Oh my, wouldn't you want to do that for your child? And like, what parent, what, would it be unethical not to do that for your child? And then like, yeah. but then he did bring up a good point because my, my, my argument immediately is like, well, that's just going to increase the wealth and uh, the wealth, wealth inequality and opportunity inequality that we have across the world where the rich people that can afford this modern technology, because you know, when it's a modern technology, it's always going to be more expensive right away, but people with money are willing to pay it. And then you're going to have this disparity where the wealthy people with great, uh, you know, monetary and uh, opportunity will use that to 
genetically enhanced their children and all the poor people in the world, most of the, most of the people, you know, the 90% of them that can't afford that will just be going, you know, being further separated or removed from this. Yeah. The inequality debate is interesting. Uh, usually I don't get too caught up in like hypothetical discussions, but like the philosophical topics here are pretty interesting because it doesn't seem that far off and it seems pretty important. And I think when it comes to like the ability to cure diseases like uh, Huntington's or sickle cell anemia, if you can prevent that and do a germline at, at it so that your offspring would not, could not have that disease gene for your embryo, that's like, it seems like something that should be done, right? Uh, and, um, and it's just a debate of like, yeah, where do you draw the line though? Because it, do you want your child to be taller? And then at that point, if everyone has kids that's like five inches taller then like no one's tall. Cause then the new average height is just this, right? And, uh, so I think basically what it boils down to is like enhancements versus like, um, kind of cures and like, um, cures are like medically necessary, like health benefits. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think this is this is a slippery slope, right? Where you know people with good intentions are starting a certain research path, and they discover certain things that will help with curing diseases. But then other people with ill intentions will take it and run with it and do bad things. And I think that's the bioethics of it. Is uh, you know, like yeah, sure, you know, Jennifer Dalinuk could say, well, of course, I'm never going to do that. I am a good researcher. You know, you should let me you know, keep researching with CRISPR and how to manipulate RNA and DNA. But, you know, we got to make sure that nothing bad comes from it. Well, you know, a hundred years from now, it might be that when everyone is dead and long gone, they might be out, it's out of our control. So, but there's no real way to put the genie back in the bottle. And like you said, if there's a way to get rid of Huntington's sickle cell anemia, then we should do it. You're right. But yeah, uh, it's hard. I don't know. Like, have you seen Gattaca, the movie? I have not. He mentions it in the book. But I need to see it. I'm surprised. You're such a big fan of, like, dystopian sci-fi. That seems right up your alley. It is. I need to see it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, like, really... Uh, one part that I remember is, like, genetic discrimination. So that, like, an employer could get your DNA from just, like, you know, your hair follicle or something. Or from a handshake and... Uh, and then they might, they'll know like basically how, what your life expectancy is and what your genetic like traits are. And so people would be like discriminated against. And then there are like designer babies in that. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but like they, they could basically make like people live longer, like healthier, stronger, whatever. But then you have people who like don't have those benefits. So yeah, there's that inequality debate. That's um, pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I, and you know, I think their their hand was kind of forced with that scientist in China that made the CRISPR, CRISPR babies, um, but they never really, they're very uh, cautious about calling for a moratorium. They never wanted to use that word because they feel like at the end of the day, the research is still important. And it is, and this very well may be the, the dawning of a new frontier of like uh, what humans, uh, human technology or human evolution or whatever um you know who knows how far this will go um but um uh, i mean the, there's no stopping it now but not not that it's a bad thing but like let me ask you do you think this will this will like how many years in the future do you think we'll be maybe talking about this a little more mainstream i think it's still rather niche you know uh, i haven't heard about this anytime recently but 
Uh, is there a time frame you, that you have in mind that you think it might be more in everyday life? It's hard to say. I mean, predictions are always tricky, but I, I imagine the next like five, 10, 15 years, it's going to be more in the news because I think COVID really accelerated like biotech funding and maybe it's a little bit less so in the last year or a few months now that things are, you know, better since COVID. But I think the, all the energy and effort and research in that can help with like other diseases and, um, you know, other projects going forward. So I think there will be a lot of breakthroughs in the next few years, but how far off do you think some of that is? We see, that's just it. I feel like it's, it's difficult, like you said, difficult to predict, but just, I am the one that brought the question. I'll, I'll attempt it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I kind of don't think, I mean, like to me, like, yeah, maybe the next five things you might get breakthrough where they can, you know, cure Huntington's or something like that. But like when it comes to, you know, actually like, I guess my thought, I, I mean, I, like, I don't think we're going to have a Gattaca situation soon. I think that's like a hundred years off maybe, but like maybe in, in, in our lifetime, we might see more people choose to have uh, more say in the genetics of their children. And maybe, maybe, maybe there is some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, standard that people agree to that they won't adjust like cosmetic uh genetics but only like genetics to help not just get rid of huntington's but also maybe like you know bipolar disorder or something else that they can maybe pick uh that i don't think is though that that kind of level of like multiple um uh, genes that you can tweak i don't think i i think we're still ways off but i may be mistaken yeah he talked a bit about how like you know do we really want to edit out maybe these physical traits that make us more diverse, but also like um, mental traits. Like we have the, like Van Gogh was like bipolar or schizophrenic and that led to his great art. But then it, you have like Fran, or, um, James Watson, his son has schizophrenia and like has had all these issues. And I think that's a big reason that he, uh, Watson was so interested in like genetics and, you know, I'm sure he'd be like, if you had the chance to like help with this, um, people suffering from like, uh, mental disease or disorders or like help with prevention like wouldn't you want to do that uh even if it might mean there's one less potential great artist <laughs> you know van gogh in the world like charles manson was schizophrenic too right he said in the book so it's like you know what's it i like i don't i don't know it's yeah, uh, for every van gogh, we get a charles manson huh <laughs> it's one-to-one uh but the point about like yeah diversity of like physical and mental attributes i think is good like if everyone has designer babies and is doing the same things it wouldn't be a good uh, society right and and the, and the thing is like you know i struggle to believe that there is a future world where everybody is genetically designed because people are still going to have sex and sex is going to yield unplanned uh, pregnancies right i mean and so it's just going to be a natural thing like, like, there's no way, like, all pregnancies are going to go through this process of, you know, whatever they do, take the egg and sperm, fertilize it, and figure it, play with the DNA. I mean, like, come on, that's not going to happen for everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. He also talked about, like, I don't know, this is pretty interesting, like, some people's physical disabilities or ailments kind of ending up being a big part of their identity. And, like, he mentioned, like, a deaf couple who they were like a lesbian couple and they deliberately set, uh, sought out like a deaf 
sperm donor so that their children child will be deaf and they got criticized by people saying like you deliberately like you know had a child with what some people would consider a disability but maybe not like many of those in the deaf community deaf community so um you know i i guess i can understand like there's always that human need for adversity and like we all have um issues and things that maybe like define our life and our identity so i don't know like i think if you have the option to like cure ailments and issues and and that kind of thing like that's basically a good thing but also he talked about like brave new world where it's like uh you have the the genetic classes and then you have like soma like this drug that everyone takes and it's like in their happy world so that's a good book by the way have you read that one? Oh yeah that's one of my favorites yeah. yeah that's a great book i think that's a good genetic uh dystopian sci-fi yeah i know yeah it is surprising i haven't green got it i admit that <laughs> yeah watch that uh the uh, one other sci-fi he mentioned uh was the andromeda strain and i think that connects to like the fear of like bio terrorism and engineering i guess that maybe the premise of that book is like it's an alien virus or something but like you know with all this research and stuff there's also that fear of like genetically engineering some kind of bioweapon which is pretty scary because i feel like you know if something like that gets out and spreads like that could really screw humanity over oh yeah oh yeah that would be that would be 10 oh that would be so much worse than <laughs> but it's it, yeah it reminds me of like so you have a nuclear energy and like ai genetics like biotech like there's all this like pros and cons and like they're very powerful like technologies right so it's just a matter of finding that right balance where you can like benefit from them without having them wipe out humanity <laughs> <laughs> ideally not wipe out humanity yes <laughs> ideally that's the, that's the goal <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but yeah I, I do you know give this book credit that it taught me a lot about um you know uh biochemistry and microbiology and like just what those terms mean like you know, biochemistry, like she would, or a microbiologist, because like microbiologists studies the bacteria where they first saw the CRISPR, because the bacteria developed this genetic code um, that helped fight off viruses. So microbiologists study small life and um, they found this uh, in bacteria. And then Doudna is a biochemist. Is that right? Mm, yeah, I think so. Because she's dealing with the actual, um, like, functioning of the cells in, oh no, she's actually dealing with, like, the d DNA and RNA and how that works. Yeah, not so much the cells itself, but, like, the phase structures, that things that make up the cell. And so that was all eye-opening. And then, like, then, yeah, there's bioethicists and biotechnists and all this other stuff that, like, I, yeah, I was completely unaware of all the 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 you know minute uh differences between all these uh science fields but it's it's interesting how like like there's people out there that are interested in all these very specific fields and then they ultimately make a discovery and then that discovery leads to something else in another field that they never like you know microbiology and bio and biochemistry aren't the same but there are similarities to where I'm, I guess I'm rambling, but my point is that there's so many people out there that have very focused careers in specific fields that they just like doing what they do because they're genuinely cur curious about it. And then they make a discovery that offshoots into another branch of sciences 
something that someone over there is super excited about and can study and learn something more. It's just, I feel like, and so that's, I think, one reason why Isaacson didn't focus on one person in particular, because he wanted to show how science is ultimately collaborative. Sure, they have these competitions over who's the first to do this certain research or who's the first to get published in a certain journal. But at the end of the day, it's all about, uh, you know, progress and, and, and basically cracking the code, being a code breaker, you know? Yeah, that's well said. That's a good way to put it together. Um, yeah, there are so many subspecialties and, and niches, but yeah, so much of the breakthroughs is built on little progress, little steps forward in like one area carried over to another area. Like Downus focus was on RNA at a time when a lot of people were focused on DNA. And so she saw some of the benefits there. And then, you know, the, you had the yogurt researchers with the bacteria breakthrough and she moved that along. And then John connected to like human cells. So, you know, it was all like a steady uh, incremental steps forward. And I think her strength too is like assembling teams and graduate students and researchers, researchers together. I think she was good at like getting people focused on a common goal and like having a good collaborative environment, even though she competed with like, you know, the uh, East coast uh, establishment, like her team itself seemed like um, pretty effective. So it was interesting to see her as a leader. So, yeah, I think um, we could probably wrap start to wrap it up. Did you, you actually read this one or did you listen to the audio? Read it. Uh, yeah. Four, 400 something. 450 some pages, Tim. Yep. It was brutal, man. Did you know it was this long when you picked it? <laughs> uh, I don't think I did. I mean, it's not like it's a hard read aside from like some of the science stuff that might be <laughs> tricky. It's just like, like I said, like a slog with some of the, you get some of the weeds with people and the dynamics. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible but to read. Like it's not, it gets into a lot of scientific details, but I don't think it's, it's, uh, it doesn't, it, it gets into a lot of the scientific de- de- details, but it's still readable. It is a slog. Yeah. It is a little long. Um, and so I just, I I had to force myself to pick it up some nights. Um, and I was like, damn it, Tim, why are you making me read this book? <laughs> but it was interesting. And I, but I like, it's just that I don't think I would really recommend this to just anybody who's interested in uh, Walter Isaacson's previous books. I, I would recommend this more to people who are definitely interested in CRISPR or uh, biotechnology. Yeah, I would agree, but I'd argue, like, I think people should try to, like, be interested in this stuff because it could be so, like, impactful to our lives, you know, and and society. Yeah, but, like, how many people really know how their iPhone works? <laughs> I mean, I would say this doesn't, this isn't, like, a biology textbook. Like, it doesn't go that deep into it. No, it doesn't. But I, I still don't, I feel like people are interested in what they're interested in, and I don't think, oh, you should read this book about the uh, human gene, you know, CRISPR because you know it's biotechnology. Okay, you go live under a rock, Brian, and you just <laughs> like you can you can you can introduce it to people in so many different ways. Don't make them read a four hundred fifty page book. That's nice. <laughs> okay, how about this? I think Isaacson and other people should just release like a one hundred page book. Here's the core ideas, and then release like a three hundred page addendum. Here are the graduate researchers who helped out, and then everybody's everyone's a winner. Yeah, I I, I ultimately think Walter Isaacson just really likes the topic, 
and he's Walter freaking Isaacson. So like he can write about whatever he wants, you know? And so he wanted to write a book about this and his publisher was like, okay. Yeah. Normally I don't like, like biographers, like inserting themselves into their book when he's talking to the first person and that kind of thing. But I think he just, he just is excited about these topics and he likes like talking with the people and uh, it made him happy to like help reconnect down though. And, uh sharpened PA when they had it like um yeah they kind of like fell out of communication so he kind of helped organize a meeting and like they were like catching up so i think little things like that i think he sort of inserts himself into the narrative but but it's fun which is fine but yeah right. radio time yeah radio time you want me to go first i'm giving it Dude, a two then i know my heart i know i was reading this and like First third I thought was interesting because it was more about Dow and how she grew up and she found her calling, you know, uh, research and uh, then, you know, how CRISPR was found and bacteria and that kind of thing. And then, and then like, it just kept going on and on. I thought I was making a good headway in it. Like, I listened to the first third on an audiobook. I thought I was about halfway through. I was like, oh man, I made great progress. And I looked, then I cracked open the physical book. To find where I left off, and I was on page 130. I was like, "Oh, got 300 pages left." So, yeah. I mean that. I mean, like, so I thought maybe it was gonna be a three or four, just because it was never gonna be a five, because it's just not my topic, man. I mean, it it was interesting. I very much admire Jennifer Doudna. I think she's a very interesting person, and all these people doing great work is very important. But when it comes to this book, I just have to give it a two. So. Yeah. Brian, maybe you lack the the taste gene, and maybe there can be a CRISPR insert <laughs> procedure done. Wow! Sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Sorry. I think your DNA is not as refined as your DNA. Yeah. Oh, your DNA has its pinky out when it's reading a book. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a procedure for you. Uh, no, I think your your criticisms are very valid. I was just very interested in the topic. Um, and I think it could have been a lot shorter and maybe to the point about like the parts that I did find most interesting. Um, so I will give it a three. Um, so I'd recommend it for anyone with even a slight interest in like biotech, uh, genetics and all that kind of thing. I think a lot of this stuff will be very like, you know, when it comes to diseases like Alzheimer's and all these other ones, like I think it could help with a lot of breakthroughs Then maybe we'll connect some of what we read here to like things we hear in the news in the coming years and decades. Um, so I think it's worth a read, but yeah, again, can be a bit of a slog. No, it's okay, Tim. It's okay. Cause I mean, like it, like you said, it's an important, important topic and like you're genuinely interested about it. And that's what this podcast is about making each other read books that we're both interested in and that might, that the other person might not read on their own, you know, and, and branching out and trying to do things. So thank you for that, Tim, I guess. Got to get out of our bubble. Yeah. So next time, uh, it's my pick, and I'm picking The Pioneers by David McCullough. And it's about how the first pioneers in the Northwest Territory, which is Ohio, is the first state out of the Northwest Territory. So, and that's where I live. And it's um, always been, uh, I'm a land surveyor, so I go out and I survey the woods in Ohio. And I wonder what it would be like to be the first people in Ohio, well, first first English people or European people to explore Ohio. Uh, I know the Native Americans were yeah, terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Sorry. Yeah, it might. But anyway, Pioneers by David McCall is our next book, um, and I'm looking forward to reading that. 
Yeah, I me too. I think that would be good. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna get two uh, heavy uh, heavyweight a- authors back to back: Walter Isaacson and and uh, David McCullough. So looking forward to that. Sounds good. And then our fifty book episode coming up soon. Yeah. Well, we got one. I think ancient. We got another fiction book before one this. more fiction book. Yeah. yeah. So of course, you people listening, you great people listening, all one of you can go to our website, twoguysonebook.com, all spelled out, twoguysonebook.com, and see what we're reading next and beyond the pioneers, and also look back at past books and let us know what you think about what we read and what are your favorites and what we should read next. So until until next time, (laughs) keep reading. Keep reading.